Amen. Thanks for singing and blessing those around you. What a great vision, the earth and heavens filled with his glory. Going to turn to uh, the Lord's word. Before we do that, I want to introduce our preacher for this morning. I, I can't give you a full introduction if I were to go down a CV or curriculum vitae, it would take us the rest of the morning, so we don't have that much time. But uh, let me just say this, uh, Dr. Stephen Um, who's the pastor of City Life PCA in Boston, a church that the Lord planted through him uh, 16 years ago, uh, he's also very involved in Redeemer's uh, City to City Global Mission. Um, and uh, is starting to work in a similar capacity with the Gospel Coalition, uh, connecting with global cities all around. If you were in Sunday school, uh, you heard a little bit about that. But he is a, uh, I am so excited to have him here because I think he represents in, in so many ways what, is, uh, what I really appreciate about our denomination, the, the PCA. Loves God's Word. Uh, he's dedicated his life to, to studying it and teaching it and preaching it and really applying it to his own life. Uh, he loves God's people. Uh, you see that in his pastoral work, uh, his passion for the loss, for those who are out, his own wife, Kathleen, his three daughters. He loves God's people. Uh, but he also is very interested you know, part of that love is, is just understanding and contextualizing and, and bringing God's word in a winsome way uh, that I think you are really going to benefit from this morning. So we are glad to have Stephen with us, and uh, he is going to be opening to us this passage of scripture from Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, uh, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. This is the word of the Lord. Father, as we come together around your word, we pray that you would help us, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us, invigorate us, uh, be our teacher, point us to Jesus, that we may see him who is indeed the object of our faith. Father, we pray for the one who is tasked with opening this word to us this morning. We ask that uh, your smile uh, would be upon him and that even as he preaches, he would feel your pleasure and that we together uh, might know the great love that you, our great missionary God, has for us. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Stephen. Preach the word, brother. Right. <clears throat> uh, it's a pleasure for me to be here. I've uh, uh, been received warmly by your congregation. And uh, first time in Grand Rapids, although I've been 
to Ann Arbor and East Lansing uh, multiple times, and I was trying to think of a kind of an appropriate uh, connection for somebody from uh, the Northeast in Boston to make. And, and the connection that I found was that uh, my quarterback, uh, who is known as the greatest of all times or as the GOAT, uh, will be playing uh, in uh, today's uh, AFC championship. That's Tom Brady, whose alma mater is uh, University of Michigan, the Wolverines. So anyways, we have some sort of a mild uh, connection. And, um, and so I am fond of Michigan for that reason. Um, uh, but the main reason, of course, the reason why I'm here is because of my admiration for your pastor and the friendship that we have had for the last eight years. Uh, the last time we uh, were together was about uh, two years ago when we were training pastors a little outside of Tokyo, uh, near Mount Fuji. So that's where we got to uh, spend uh, time together. And we first met when, we, uh, when I was there teaching a class at Covenant many years ago. Um, I thought about a passage to preach from, and um, recognizing that this is an uh, entire month that you're dedicating uh, to global missions, and, and I'm sure you've heard from many wonderful missionaries, church planners, pastors, uh, lay leaders uh, who have come and uh, shared with you the amazing work that God is doing, uh, more than it can be shared, uh, I'm sure, in this uh, brief moments that they've had with you. But I decided to uh, preach from a text that emphasized the faith uh, of an individual by the name of Abraham. And the reason why I decided to do that was because this uh, passage here in, in Hebrews 11 is summarizing what happened in the Abrahamic covenant, the, the promise that get, God gave, the threefold promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And it's in, 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 it's in that light that I want us to consider what it means, just as Abraham was called, how we as followers of Jesus Christ, as disciples of Jesus Christ, what does it mean for us to respond to the call to the Great Commission to live out our lives on mission for the cause of the global church? And, um, and so whether you're called to be displaced and be transported to another location, or whether or not you're being called to live in a cross-cultural context, or you're being called to simply be a faithful, active, participatory member of Christ's church and engaging in these sorts of activities, we have all been called. We have all been called uh, to actively live out our lives on mission for the cause of the global church. Because... The way that we do missions, the way we, we evaluate how to bring the gospel to people who are lost, that approach, that way of looking at it has evolved over the years. And we have to have good sensibilities and the agility to be able to contextualize in a different age. And what I mean by that is because of the trends of globalization and urbanization, that we need to go after cities. We need to go after cities because that's where everyone is migrating in 25 years. Uh, we will have about 77, 75% of the world's population living in, in urban centers. Every month, 5.5 million people enter into cities. That's the size of a San Francisco every single month. And so, so we are living in an exciting time, but we're living in a time where our future is an urban uh, a future. And again, this doesn't mean that the activity that God is doing in ex-urban communities or rural communities or the countryside is unimportant. No, absolutely not. Wherever there are people, God is concerned. Because God loves, uh, as one person, uh, pastor says from Philadelphia, God loves people more than he loves trees. Now, don't get defensive on me. God created the trees, and so that's his creation. And so he appreciates anything that he has created. But God loves his people because people have been created in the image of God. 
And there are more people per square inch in cities than any other human settlement. And so God is very, very concerned. And he wants to be able to bring the gospel to bear in strategic ways uh, in world-class cities around the globe. And so this is what I would like for us to consider. But we need to do this by asking the question about the theme of faith. Now, every single human being lives by faith. When Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we ought to walk by faith and not by sight, he does not say that we ought to walk by faith and not by reason. He doesn't say that. Of course we need reason. God is a reasonable God. God is somebody uh, who does not tell us to walk blindly. You know, where did that phrase come from? You know, just kind of, kind of, a, 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 a kind of stabbing our, our efforts in the dark. That's, that's not what God calls us to. He says that there, are, that, that there are faithful plausibility structures in the world. And whenever we evaluate any choice that we're going to make, we, we, we investigate, we do research, we do data analysis, we, we, we look at all of the different measurements to determine whether or not the product or the, the something or someone will deliver on the goods of the promises that it or he or she has made. And therefore, based upon that faithful plausibility structure, we put our faith in the object of our faith. So that means that Christians are not differentiated from every other individual because we walk by faith and everyone else walks by reason. No, we all walk by faith. Yes, even the new atheists walk by faith. Their belief, their worldview is a faith proposition. It's a, it's a faith proposition. And so the question is not so much whether we walk by faith, but what is the object of our faith? That's what distinguishes our position from anyone else. And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to hammer away at this over and over again, where he's saying that God is the one who is faithful. God is the one who will keep his promise. God is somebody who will be actively involved in our lives. As one author put it, faith is not simply an exercise of the brain, but it is an investment of our lives. It is not something you merely think, but it is something that you live. So faith is not just a theological doctrine. Yes, we understand it as a, as a gift from God. The writer of Hebrews says in verse 1 and also in verse 6, he says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and it is the conviction of things not yet seen. And the word there, conviction, can be understood as evidence or proof, even the word assurance can be understood as substance, as if it were real, even though it's in the future. Things that we hope for in the future. That's how real God's work has been actively involved in our lives through his redeeming work and through his sanctifying work through the spirit. But I think that we, as modern Christians, maybe less so here in Grand Rapids because of your great uh, reformed uh, tradition, Presbyterian uh, tradition, um, Dutch tradition. Some of my greatest uh, theologian uh, heroes are, are, are Dutch. Uh, Herman Ritterboss, if, if you ever find a book out of print written by Herman Ritterboss, make sure you get it. And then sell it to your pastor and make a profit. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, we as modern Christians, we, we tend to, to overstate everything. You know, we, we get caught up in the superlatives, right? Like epic or that which is extraordinary or, or 
revolutionary or radical or the next big thing. And when we think about walking by faith, the whole image of walking and having faith are very, very common, daily, routine, non-dramatic, rhythmic, consistent, steady activities that we do every day. Could you imagine if at every point you're doing something epic, every 30 seconds, oh, mom, look at what I'm doing, doing this epic thing. If you do that, if you write an email, everything in caps and italicized bold, then, then we don't know what to, to focus on. Because everything is done with an exclamation point. It's like, hey, it's got to be radical. I mean, that's not the way life is lived. Life is lived by the non-dramatic, rhythmic ways of being faithful and being ordinary, unnoticed life. Look at the life of Enoch. It just simply says he walked with God and he was translated to heaven. Doesn't say much about him. You know, on his tombstone, what would it say? Well, he didn't have a tombstone because he, he was translated. But let's say hypothetically, if he had a tombstone, it would say, Enoch walked with God. <laughs> That's all it would say. It's, 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 not, it's not this impressive uh, resume or CV on steroids and putting in things that, re, that we remotely did 10 years ago in order to impress ourselves and to hope that people will be able to look upon us and think that we are greater than we actually are. It's an ordinary life. It's an unnoticed life. It's a life that is non-dramatic and rhythmic. And this is what God is calling us to do. And, and here's a kind of a biblical theological piece that I want to introduce here before getting to the heart of what I like to say. When you look at the international scope of what was going on in Genesis chapter 11, right, the Tower of Babel, all of the people from different cultures and different languages came together. And of course, they came together for wrong reasons. But anyways, this was a pretty impressive gathering. And you see this, and then right afterwards in chapter 12, it's, it doesn't quite, the narrative doesn't develop there. You're like, okay, if you had this big scene in Genesis 11, there's something impressive has to happen in Genesis 12. And what comes in Genesis 12? The Abrahamic blessing. The Abrahamic covenant, the promise. Where God singles out one individual for the great work of God. And you're like, what? Have all this international scale? And then you want to use this like one individual? And this is the way the Bible works. If I were to give you a biblical theology of this, kind of a biblical theological, missiological landscape view of, of the scriptures, then I can look at Abraham, I can look at David, I can look at corporate Israel. Where where God comes to the one singular individual who will be a blessing to the, to the multitude. The one to the many, the particular to the universal. And so the threefold blessing of Abraham's uh, blessing was this, covenantal blessing in Genesis 12. Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Number two, your name will be great and I'm going to bless you. Number three, you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. That's a pretty impressive blessing. Especially in an ancient culture where blessing was huge and curse was terrible. A curse was, was terrible. But when you look at the four different places in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 18, 18, 22, 18, 26, 4, and 28, 14, where it summarizes the Abrahamic blessing, it summarizes it by using this language. It says that all nations of the earth shall be blessed. All nations 
of the earth shall be blessed. Does that ring a bell? The Great Commission, when Jesus was commissioning and speaking to his disciples in Matthew 28, 19, this is what it says. All authority from heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, or therefore going, and making disciples of all nations. And baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them everything I have commanded you, and I will be with you to the ends of the earth. And so, so the Great Commission is actually tied to the Abrahamic blessing. Of how God came to single out one individual who will be a blessing to a multitude of people. And in the same way that we as God's people who have been called out to live out our lives on mission. To be able to walk by faith and not by sight. That we are called to bring uh, this uh, blessing. The blessing, the benefits, and the privileges of the gospel for those who are lost. So I want us to look at the three movements here uh, from our passage. Number one. We're going to look at what walking by faith looks like. Number two, we're going to look at why walking by faith is scary. And thirdly, how walking by faith can be good news. The first is uh, walk, what walking by faith looks like. And you know what it is? It's simple. It's obeying God's word. Abraham responded to the word of God. There's a progression here when it says here, you know, you, uh, he obeyed, he was called to go out in verse 8. And then, and then he went out not knowing where he was going. And then in verse 9, by faith he went to live in the land of promise. That when God spoke, Abraham responded. And I want to encourage you here by, by recognizing that that there is no other revelation from God outside of Scripture. There's no other revelation outside of the canon of Scripture. God's not speaking uh, through some other means outside of Scripture. There's no other revelation outside of Scripture. Now, some of you might be saying, Whoa, wait a minute. I was praying the other day. I kind of got the sense that God was kind of... Okay. What you're doing is, is that you're confusing two activities of God. That is the confusion between illumination and revelation. Okay? So God illumines his people all the time. He illuminates our minds. He brings to our remembrance a sermon that we heard before or, or, or a text that we read before. Or he, he illuminates our minds through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is what the work of the Spirit is. It illuminates our minds. It lightens our hearts and enlightens our minds to be able to know the things of God. But revelation in and of itself cannot be taken out. Anything outside of the canon. And so what Abraham here is, is he's simply responding to the voice of God, God is speaking directly uh, to him. And we see that that was what faith was about. One Hebrew scholar said that this expression here in Genesis 12 when Abraham left is that of determinedly dissociating oneself. That is, he was, he, was, he was called to leave by yourself. Or as Calvin summarized it, he said, the essence of this faith-demanding command was, I command you, Abraham, to go forth with closed eyes. Until having renounced your country, you shall have given yourself wholly to me. This is a similar call that the disciples of Christ received in Matthew 10.37 when Jesus said, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. That he was willing to give up his allegiances, 
to his kindred, his family, to his community, to his country, to his culture. To, he was stripped of every single conceivable security, national, socioeconomic, familial, cultural, that he was told to give up all of these things. Now, you have to remember that Abraham did not have a righteousness all on his own. Because the writer of the book of Joshua in Joshua 24, 2 says, Long ago your ancestors, Terah and his sons Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates and served other gods. So Abraham was a, was a pagan, a polytheistic worshiping at that particular time from the city of Ur, which was the ancient civilization of Mesopotamia, modern-day southern Iraq. And he was living in this very influential, densely populated city called Ur, and he was worshiping their moon god called Namu. And so this is the kind of person whom God called for his purposes. Now what if God were to come to you and to ask you to leave your comfortable, familiar setting of security? What if he were to ask you, are you able to, to leave this? Now I'm not suggesting that God is necessarily doing that. Okay, so I'm not trying to be uh, like a standard kind of missionary who says, okay, everyone, come on, there must be some of you out there who are being called to cross-cultural missions. I don't know that. I, I, I usually, I'm not a recruiter uh, in that regard. However, as, as you're living in this beautiful place out here in western Michigan, in Grand Rapids, where it's 45 degrees in January, I mean, this is an amazing place, right? Right? We forget the sub-zero temperatures a week ago. but <laughs> Abraham did not make his money his security. He heard God's command and his call and he responded. He did not make his money his security. He did not make even his family his security. As adorable as your children are. Maybe you've been parenting for a while and they're like 17, 18 and you can't wait until they kind of... I move on. The point is that we're not supposed to cling to our culture. As, as patriotic as we want to be, as great citizens of this land, we're not supposed to cling to our country. We're not supposed to cling to our culture. We're not supposed to cling to our racial culture. We're not supposed to cling to our material things. We're not supposed to cling to our academic credentials. We're not supposed to cling to anything that will give us meaning outside of the security that we find in seeking after another city, another place whose foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This is the call that we have given to, that God has given to us, that we ought not to be controlled or shackled, limited by what we can do. Because we say, oh, this is as much as I can do for you, God. If God's limitless, amazing grace that has been demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ has no boundaries, that means our obedience has no boundaries. That's the way it works. 
If God were to merely work on merit, then our response to his blessing to us would be reciprocal to the measure and proportional to the blessing that he gives us. Oh, you gave me this much blessing, I will reciprocate, and I will give you this much of obedience in return. It will be a fair exchange. But when a gracious God enters your life, this is a completely different approach. You have a completely different approach uh, to life. So true faith always results in this radical living. Not that we want to be radical, but, but the living will be radical. Why? Because what would be more radical than a wealthy man giving up everything to follow God? Nothing more extreme than that. What would God call you? Here's a word of exhortation. What would God call you to do right now that you would, be, you would hesitate if God were to call you to give up something or to surrender something, what would be that thing that you would have difficulty giving up? What is it? When God calls us, we need to respond by obeying his word. That's the first movement of faith. Secondly, why walking by faith is scary. Look what it says here in verse, uh, verse 9. For by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents. Now remember, Abraham has given up everything to follow God. And one commentator said it this way. God visited Abraham through multiple moments of crisis. Every time he would come to him and he, and he says, um, yep, I want you to leave this place. Oh, God, where, where are you sending me? Oh, I'll tell you later. And he comes and he says, uh, uh, I want you to, uh, uh, to, uh, to give, up, give up your son and sacrifice him. Uh, why, God? I'll, I'll tell you later. Oh, I'm going to give you a child. Um, we're kind of old, God. When is that going to happen? I'll tell you later. That every moment of crisis in his life, he didn't know what the future he kind of had a vague understanding. There was a lot of uncertainty about his future. A lot of uncertainty about his future. And one of the challenges of walking by faith is that the future is uncertain. The future is uncertain. So if you're in your 20s, see some of you maybe college students in your 20s, you're still aspirational, right? Where people come to you and say, oh, you know, you have so much potential. But don't necessarily see that as a compliment because in, in reality what they're saying is you have actually absolutely no actual. You haven't done anything in your life. As far as I know, you might be, you might be a failure. But you, you have a lot of potential because you're still in your 20s. Okay? And when you're in your 30s, you think about getting married and you, and, and you settle down having children. And you have worries about that. Financial uncertainty about the future always brings a great amount of anxiety. That is why when you look at your problem emotions, what are they? Your problem emotions will be the greatest problem emotion will be fear. Another one will be insecurity, anxiety and worry, boredom, irritability, defensiveness, bitterness, despair, depression. All of these problem emotions, you can't just simply attack the problem emotions. Because if you were to simply do that with your life experience, your lived out experience, then all you need is a is a, pal a, a Galilean peasant therapist. Hey, Jesus, can you just kind of help me give me a little bit of therapy and, 
and uh, you know, you know, consult a little bit. I don't know how to kind of invest my, uh, how to kind of set up my future portfolio. Can you can you give me a little bit of advice? You see, the reason why we look at the problem emotions is because the problem emotions are the fruit of something that is deeper in your heart. We call that idolatry, whether it's comfort, influence, power, control, approval. These are big idols which are expanding on what the writer of Ezekiel 13 says, that the self is the biggest idol. And since the self is the biggest idol and we are self-centered and self-absorbed, we need approval, we need power, we need control, we need influence, we need approval, we need all of these things. And because we don't have it, and because we can't manage the future, because the future is unknown, it is dark, what do we do? We try to manage by sight. I'm so grateful that the word of God does not say manage by sight. It says walk by faith. Managing by, uh, by sight, you know what that is? It's looking for coping mechanisms to help you deal with your problem. Momentary escapist fixes that are temporary narcotics to provide a balm for the struggle in the human heart. So it would be, some, what are some of those escapist fixes? Overeating or not eating well. For me, a pint of haagen or Cherry Garcia, a pint. I sneak it, my wife, I sneak it, put it back, way back in the freezer and no one can touch it. It's mine. So I, I, just, I just kind of eat it out of the carton. I don't even <laughs> scoop it and put it in a bowl. What's the point? It's a pint, right? <laughs> Sexual fantasy. Daydreaming. What are your fantasies? What do you daydream about? That's your temporary escapist fix. Some of you are expert procrastinators. Right? I mean, expert procrastinators. Some of you clean the house. People come and say, oh, your house is so neat. Yeah, yeah, I know. I clean it all the time. I told my wife, I said, honey, you're blessed to have a husband who loves cleaning the bathroom. I said, yeah, you're not doing it for us. You're doing it for yourself. Yeah, well, nevertheless, the result is that the bathroom is clean. <laughs> because why? Because... I fret about the things that I don't know and I can't control about the future, but I can control the cleanliness of my bathroom. I can control the furniture in the home. If there is like a cushion sofa disintegration, then I can put all the cushions up, pop it up, and I feel good about that because my life is in, in, in order now. And so my youngest daughter will come and she just jump on the sofa in the living room and say, what are you doing? Say, Dad, this is why we have a sofa so we can sit on it. And as soon as she gets up, I kind of prop up the pillows again. I said, Dad, you have a lot of problems. I said, I know. <laughs> you Uber shop. You say that your, your wants are your needs. You spend hours and hours online. You binge on Netflix programs. All those stranger things is pretty good. You overwork. You gamble. These are all coping mechanisms and functional saviors. And here's a great, great verse in Daniel 2.22. It's kind of like a throwaway expression. You're never going to pick it up because you're reading Daniel's prayer in light of Nebuchadnezzar. 
But this is what it says. Daniel 2.22 says, God knows what's in the darkness. What an amazing verse is that. And he will bring light into it. You don't know how many times I have cited that verse when people come and they're like, oh, I'm stressed about the future. You know, I, I've got a, a son who's going to a private institution in Boston who's going to be going to college and, you know, I'm a little behind in, in preparing for tuition and I'm stressed about this and my second daughter goes to an independent school. I don't know how I'm going to manage. God knows what's in the darkness. They're like, huh? I said, you don't know what's in the darkness. God doesn't ask you to live out your life beyond the, the, the boundaries of what he has called you to do. If God wanted you to be able to figure out and to know what's in the darkness, then he would have given you those gifts. He would have said, you know, you don't need me. You can do it all on your own because you have that kind of prescient knowledge and you have omniscience. You can see, you have, you have, you have foreknowledge, you have providential knowledge that you can look into the future. But God doesn't ask us to be that. And I'm so grateful, I'm so grateful that I have limitations. I'm so grateful that God tells me to rely on him and to walk by faith and not manage by sight. And how was Abraham able to do that? Because, and I quote one author, your greatest fear will expose your greatest trust. Your greatest fear will expose your greatest trust. You don't know this because I come here and I seem somewhat presentable and, and hide behind whatever description that you know of me. But I'm afraid of heights. It's called acrophobia. Okay, like a serious fear of heights. Like I walk over a bridge and I got to like hold on to, <laughs> to the railing like that. And my, my, uh, my children make fun of me all the time. Why would I have fear of heights? I mean, do I not have confidence in the engineers who, who, who built this and uh, structural civil engineers and the architects who designed this and all that? Well, that's part of my problem. I probably don't trust them. But, but be, besides that, it's because it's difficult for me to trust people and to trust them. Maybe that has something to do with my background, okay? And so, so this comes forward and, and so when I'm afraid of certain situations like that, it's going to expose my trust, those things that I value. And it will be the same for you. If God, if anything is, is threatening your trust, you're going to fight for it with all your might. If somebody, if you get irritated by something that is being asked of you, if your child comes and, and says, hey, hey, dad, you know, you are an engineer and you know something about math and science and and I need some help here with my physics homework or my calculus homework. And you're like, oh, why are you coming to me now? Why couldn't you tell me ahead of time? You know, I know I have to watch the Patriots later today. What am I going to do? How am I going to spend all that? Why do you get irritable? You get irritable because what is your value? Your value at that time is comfort. You want comfort. You hate conflict. You hate discomfort. And you wanted, you had a long day. I had a long day. I was speaking at a conference. Went home. Of course, the game will be over by then. But hypothetically, if the game were still on, and I'm trying to watch the last 30 minutes of it, even though we'll be up by two touchdowns, even if that's the case, <laughs> and my daughter comes and says, hey, Dad, can you help me with my calculus homework? She wouldn't ask that because I wouldn't be able to help her. But the point is, I'm, I'm like, because when my value, comfort, is threatened, then I become irritable. 
Friends, the reason why walking by faith is scary is because there's so many things that are uncertain, those things we do not know, those things which we are afraid of, and that will lead us to respond that way. Then, how can we respond the way Abraham responded? It leads us to our final point. Obeying God brings you home. How walking by faith is good news is because Jesus left everything to give us everything. Abraham had everything. He gave it all up. There was another person, another moment in history where he left the safety of his father's home and he went to the cross. He became homeless as it were. He was separated from the presence of God. Jesus, who was in the form of God, Philippians chapter 2, who did not consider his equality with God, with God something to be held on to tightly, but he became nothing, emptied himself, and died and became obedient even to the point of death. That Jesus Christ, who was in the form of God, when he was asked by the Father, he went to a foreign land. Through the incarnation, he came into the world because he knew that there were people who were worshiping other gods, people who were afraid, people who were trying to control and manage their own lives and that they would have no hope unless he would come. And this is what Jesus Christ has done for us. That Abraham was asked to leave his family, Jesus left his ultimate family. Abraham was asked to leave economic security, Jesus gave up eternal riches. Abraham was called to go to a foreign country at the risk of his life, Jesus Christ was asked to leave and to go to a foreign country at the cost of his life. If that's what he has done, if he is a greater, greater Abraham, then that's going to loosen our ability. As I said earlier, if God's grace to us is limitless, then there isn't anything that God could not ask from us to be able to live out our lives, our mission, as we walk by faith and not by sight. One commentator said this, this is the real scandal of the particularity of Jesus, one who singled out, just as Abraham was singled out, and how he came for the one for the many. The real scandal of this particularity not just that God's universal purpose pivots on one particular human being. That's not what's, what's, uh, uh, what the scandal is because that happened with Abraham, with David, and with corporate Israel. The real scandal, which is much worse, is that God's universal purpose pivots on this particular human being. In this particular way. That he singled out Jesus, that he might be a curse, Galatians chapter 3. That he might be hung on a tree, that he might be a curse, so that we might be recipients of his blessing. That Jesus Christ received the curse that we deserved, so that we might receive the blessing he deserved. And if indeed that is what Jesus has done for us, and if he has given us not only the threefold blessing of Abraham, but the ninefold blessing of the Beatitudes... Because he was willing to suffer, he was willing to be persecuted, he was willing to become nothing, he was willing to give up everything, he was willing to sacrifice his eternal riches so that those who are poor might become rich. Because he who was rich became poor so that we might know the riches, the benefits, and the privileges of the gospel. Which means that we are now called not only to an outward movement of bringing the gospel to the global church, but we are also engaged in a downward movement as we recognize 
that the way up is down. If you want to know what it means to follow Jesus, you must first be a servant. If you want to know what glorification is, you must first understand the cross. The way up is down. You want to be first, you must first be last. And this is the call that we have been given to walk by faith. And I believe that this community here at Christ Church, I even see as I'm kind of learning and observing, have been involved in that sort of activity. But I would like to kind of leave with this kind of last uh, word of exhortation. Are there things that you're holding on to, certain uncertain things that you're unwilling to relinquish? Has the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ come into your hearts and, and softened your heart to be able to have this kind of a, an approach to life where you have given everything for the purposes of the growth of the global church? Or are you living a life that's isolated and you're managing by sight but not walking by faith? There's nothing more reassuring, friends, than to know that you're walking by faith. Why? And here are my parting words. Because look, not my words. These are the words of the writer of Hebrews. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called your God. So God looks upon me and says, I am not ashamed to be Stephen Um's God. He looks upon your pastor and says, I am not ashamed to be Andrew Van Der Waals' God. I am not ashamed. You know what the opposite of that would be? I am ashamed to be your God. It would, be, it would be at the scale of a cosmic rejection. The positive way to say this would be that God would say, I am proud to be your God. It delights me to be your God. I rejoice over you with singing, as it says in Zephaniah 3, with gladness. If God rejoices over you, if he is not ashamed to be called your God, if he's willing to give everything, everything that he has, if Jesus is willing to, to give up all of his eternal riches, he's willing to give up his rights because if there were anyone in human history who had the right to protect his rights and wanted to live an entitled life, listen carefully, especially for those of you who are younger, there was only one person in human history who was an entitled person. That was the person of Jesus Christ. And that entitled person who had all the rights in the world to maintain the rights as the son of God, he gave up those rights so that you and I might be able to understand the beautiful blessing of what it means to receive the doctrines of grace, to live a life out on mission for the goal of reaching the global church. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, Lord, we confess that, that we struggle to to fully comprehend all that you've done for us. So I pray that your spirit, through what we find in the word of God, might open our hearts and soften us so that we would love you, that we would know that we have been fully loved, that we would respond uh, with, with a call to, to fully relinquish everything that we have, whatever you're asking us to do, that we will be able to do it because Jesus gave up all of his eternal riches so that we may be rich. In his name we pray.